Church, today we're in that text, John chapter 6, which is a hard text. There are particular spots in the Bible that are hard to understand, and they're hard for a reason. So studying this text, I was thinking about particular situations or scenarios that I've found to be true in my life, situations where the more I knew about something, the less I actually knew about it. Think of situations like that. Meaning the more that you study something, the more you realize, whew, this is a lot more complicated than what I realized. Or the more that you investigate something, the more humble you are about how much more you need to learn. I'd suggest to you that the best marriage books are not written by people who would entitle a book about marriage like this, marriage is easy. <laughs> I don't want to read that book. I don't want to read that book at all. I don't want to talk to a pastor who would say, hey, let's get together for lunch because my church is killing it. I don't want to talk to that guy. The, the reality is, is that there are things in life that the more that you know, the more that you know that you don't know. Today we're in a text that's going to help us to see that as it relates to being a follower of Jesus. And we have before us a passage that has hard words in it, the kind of words that are designed to help us to realize that we have a long ways to go. The same could be true for fathers. If I were to say, I want all of the exceptional fathers to stand, the reality would be that if you know a lot about fathering, you know you know that you've got a long ways to go. The text in John chapter six is designed to help us understand that there is a hopelessness that every human being has apart from the help of Jesus. And the more that you know about Jesus, and the more that you know about you, the more you understand how hopeless life is apart from Jesus. So spiritual growth and sanctification doesn't look like, if you're a Christian, doesn't look like getting over the amount of help that you need in Jesus. On the contrary, it's the reverse. The more you know about you, the more you read the Bible, the more you understand about Jesus, the more you realize, I need him, I need him more today than I did a week ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And this text is designed to show us this singular truth, it's this. It's designed to show us our hopelessness without the help of Jesus. So I want to show you this in the text today by first walking you through what is this hard saying that Jesus identifies and says? Secondly, what does he do in terms of the solution? He gives them a big view of himself, a big view of God. And, and third, he offers a singular hope, uh, the only option that we have. And then what I want to do along the way is just apply this on this Father's Day to dads generally, but to the rest of us corporately. So first, a hard saying. In verse 60, we find the disciples are struggling with what Jesus says. Verse 60 says, when many of disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, and who can listen to it? So there's many disciples at this point, and John wants us to know that there's lots of people who are gathered around Jesus, 
We're not exactly sure why. It may be because as we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus was feeding people, feeding 5,000. Some were enamored perhaps with the provision that Jesus was giving them. With others, it could have been that they were just, just incredibly curious about the miracles that he had performed. But what John wants us to know is that there are many people who are following it Jesus' side. He calls them disciples. Note this, we'll come back to it in a few moments, but you need to know that where this text goes is that at the end of what Jesus says, these disciples, many of them, they turn and they walk away. They no longer follow Jesus. So John leads this paragraph by identifying that when these disciples heard what Jesus said, they replied, this is hard. And by the way, hard doesn't mean hard to understand in this context. It means rather that it is offensive, that it's demanding, that it's tough. They find the words of Jesus hard to swallow. How can you say this? That's what they mean. Now, what was Jesus saying? Well, in order to know why they're reacting, you need to know what it was that he said, and that relates to a text that we covered last week. Look at chapter 6 and verse 37. I'm just going to highlight a few of the things that Jesus said. Jesus said this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus in chapter 6 is addressing the problem of unbelief, and he identifies here that the Father gives people to him, and those that the Father gives him, he draws them. They come to him. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So these are mysterious and hard words to understand with lots of implications. If you understand what Jesus says, the minute you understand it, it creates like four additional questions. Verse 44, or rather, sorry, sorry, 53. So Jesus said to them, truly the Son of Man, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he will also live because of me. And as I said last week, that if you study this text and you are a follower of Jesus and you love the work of Jesus, when you hear these verses, you're like, oh, I know what he means. And if you don't like Jesus and you are inclined not to believe his words, you hear these words and you're like, this is gross. And what Jesus is attempting to do is to draw a clear line between those who are believing in him and those who aren't. Because the problem in John chapter 6 is the issue of unbelief. John is attempting to help us to see that in order for people to become followers of Jesus, in order to be a true disciple, you have to move beyond your unbelief. We'll see this throughout this gospel, but right here it's in very clear form for us, and that is that in order to believe in Jesus, you have to stop believing in the wrong things. Well, let me make it more specific. In order to trust in Jesus, you have to stop trusting in the wrong things, especially you have to stop trusting in yourself. And the thing that Jesus wants these disciples to wrestle with 
is whether or not they're gonna trust in him unequivocally, without conditions, your Lord and that's it, or whether or not they're going to sort of manage Jesus in their lives. And you know there's a lot of people who still try and do that. They want to add Jesus to the life that they've always wanted. They don't want Jesus to come in and take over. They want Jesus just to be added. They want Jesus to be their co-pilot. They want Jesus to be their guide. And what Jesus is trying to do here is something that is actually really helpful. He isn't trying to be mean. He's not trying to be elusive. He's attempting to address the problem of the blindness of the human heart. And in order to address the blindness issue, Jesus has to come on fairly strong, and here's why, because the blindness of the human heart is not easily persuaded that it is in fact blind. Think of the last time that you were guilty of the sin of pride. If you're like, hmm, can't think of the last time. It's right now, okay? <laughs> so think of the last time you're guilty of the sin of pride. When you realized that you were being proud, how did that happen? My guess is it happened by some sort of dramatic, blunt force issue that happened, and you sort of woke up and you're like, what was I thinking? Or somebody had to really get in your grill to tell you that you're being full of yourself right now. So usually pride does not die easily. It is not easily confronted. It isn't something that's easily persuaded. Usually the way that the blindness of the human heart is dealt with is by brokenness that God brings into our lives. So the hard words of Jesus here are designed to break our self-confidence. So if you've come to church this morning and you find yourself in a position of brokenness, like you come here on this Father's Day and your heart is just so incredibly heavy, and if someone were to ask you, how are you doing, you're like, I don't know. And you look at the future and you're like, I have no idea how I'm going to get there. I have no idea how to fix my marriage. I have no idea how to get back into a right relationship with my kids. I have no idea what to say to my kids that are not a fan of me right now, I have no idea how to do, you put, fill in the blank. If you have something in your life and you're a follower of Jesus and you have no idea how to deal with it, you're actually halfway there to the solution. If you're here today, you're not yet a Christian and maybe that God has orchestrated the events of your life such that you're in church today because you keep running into brick walls and realizing there's got to be another way and there is. And eventually, I pray that you'll see that all of these things that seem so painful right now are actually God's grace gifts to you, helping you to realize the blindness of your heart, and when God reveals that, it is a grace gift from him. We learn something in this text about the value of hard sayings. They clarify who really is a disciple. In verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. They then say, who can listen to it? The idea there in the original language is not just hearing, but it's those who listen and accept his words. So what we're going to find in this text is that real disciples 
not just, they don't just hear the words of Jesus, they accept the words of Jesus, they incorporate the words of Jesus, they live on the words of Jesus. And why is this important to know? Here's why. Because not everyone, listen, who identifies as a disciple really is a disciple. This text acknowledges that it's possible to be around Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to like some of the things of Jesus, to love the things that Jesus does and not really be a disciple. You could even kind of be lumped together with a group of people. You learn what to say and how to act and people start calling you a disciple. However, you may not really be a disciple. This is especially important for those of us who were raised in a Christian home. Thank God for that heritage if that's yours, if your parents made you come to church today, you ought to turn to them and say, thank you for getting me up today, mom and dad. It's a gift, but there's also a danger to it. So kids, listen to me, or if you were raised in a Christian home, listen to me carefully. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to needlessly caution you. I just simply want you to realize that being a disciple means that you do more than know the right stuff or you're around the right people. It means you embrace the lordship of Jesus and you hear what he says and say in your soul, although that's hard, I receive it because of who you are. It also means that if you're a father and you have a child who's walked away from the faith, There's hope, and the hope is that your son or daughter would come to an end of their self-trust. And what you can pray over that wayward son or daughter is a bold, gutsy, compassionate prayer to say, God, be merciful to my son or daughter, but Lord, remove the things that they are trusting in. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you don't meddle, and you don't manipulate, and you pray, and then when the self-trust foundation erodes, by God's grace, hopefully you'd be the first person that they would call. Being a disciple means embracing the hopelessness of self-trust. And it's interesting, hard sayings in the Bible help us to see that. Now what does Jesus do with this hard saying and the conflict that emerges with the disciples? Well, the second thing that we see here is he elevates a view of God, of himself, of the spirit, and of the very words of Christ. He gives them a big view of God. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? What's interesting here is you're going to see that Jesus, when he knows that the disciples are offended, he doesn't lower the bar. Instead, he goes the opposite direction. He actually seems to move his truth further away from them. And the reason that he does this is because he wants them to deal with their self-confidence, their unbelief. In verse 61, we find that Jesus knows that they're grumbling, and he asks them directly if they're offended by what he said. Now, I want to be careful here with what Jesus does, because you could use the example of Jesus and be sort of a spiritual bull in a china shop. But what's interesting here to note, especially within our present culture is that Jesus asks them if they are offended, but he doesn't change what he says in the slightest. 
In fact, he actually says things that are even more offensive. It's like Jesus like, says, you offended by this? Just wait to hear what I'm gonna say next. And we live in a culture where that's not how most of us would approach a conflict like this. And again, I wanna be careful, but I wanna acknowledge here that our culture tends to view being offended as the non-negotiable, always legitimate emotion. In other words, we rarely have our being offended feelings challenged. We rarely ask somebody, do you think you should have been offended by that? Because being offended is like the ultimate emotion. The challenge, though, is that it's just a matter of perspective. You see, we don't do that in every arena. Let me illustrate it for you. It just depends on how you see Jesus as it relates to his disciples. Dads, imagine it's a Saturday morning and your kids, let's say you have two of them, have soccer games all over the city of Indianapolis. You've had to get up early, make them a killer goal-scoring breakfast. You carted them all over the city. Every piece of clothing and cleats and shin guards, the soccer ball that everybody else has, your kids have that. You've provided all of it. You have this vehicle. You're driving them all over the city. You, you sit at soccer games and watch how they're coached, and you are godly and quiet. When the, when the, when the offsides call happens, it was clearly not that. You are a righteous man. You, you're hospitable with people next to you, and uh, when the game is over, you encourage your children. Give them a few coaching points, but not as many as what you would like, and you get in the car and you spend all Saturday caring for, encouraging, and doing what dads do when they have kids who play soccer. And on the way home, after all the things that you have done, your kids say, Dad, can we stop for ice cream? And in this moment, you realize that while you could say yes, and sometimes you have, you realize that there's a lot of things that are in, the, in play. First of all, you've been gone all day. Secondly, you provided all sorts of things for your kids, and if you keep doing this, it's gonna be a never-ending well. Third, I mean, ice cream in the city of Indianapolis is like the cost of a meal somewhere else. It'd be like $35 for ice cream. And so there's budgetary considerations, there's time considerations, there's calorie considerations, and there's in the future considerations that our kids are every single time we do this, they're gonna think, we're in the car, we have to have ice cream. And that just does, that's not gonna serve anyone well. And so as a dad, you wisely say, you know what kids, no, we're not gonna stop. Well imagine from the back seat if your children say, I'm offended. <laughs> that's offensive. How can you say that? Dad's just supposed to provide ice cream. And then let's say your wife doesn't really know what she's thinking at that moment. She says, honey, we can't have the kids be offended. Let's stop and get ice cream. <laughs> the difference and the reason why it would be appropriate for a dad to say no and why the offense of the moment is laughable is because the children in the vehicle and the father and the parents are not on equal standing in terms of what they know is good for them. And a father has the right to say no because he's dad. I mean, there are, every once in a while, dads and moms, you can use that I'm the parent card 
Can't use it all the time, but every once in a while you have to say, look, I'm sorry, but I can't explain this to you. I just need you to trust me, and I'm going to say no. And because of the disparity between what children are in their upbringing and what parents are supposed to do, it makes that decision not only appropriate, it makes it right. What you need to know in this moment is that Jesus asks these disciples if they are offended, and he is not talking to people who are his equal. This is the Son of God, and the things that he's telling them are designed for them to know who he is, and as they know who he is, they will find the hope that they absolutely need. So what does Jesus do? He then says in verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Notice, Jesus doesn't say, well, let me explain to you what I really meant. He says, you think that's offensive? What if you saw me in all my glory? Jesus goes the opposite direction. Instead of answering their question or their concerns, he actually elevates the image of who he is. It's the same thing that happens in the book of Job, that in the midst of the suffering of Job, rather than God explaining all the things that are happening behind the scenes, God explains to Job what God is like, because who God is is more comforting than all of the circumstances that are happening behind the scenes, apparently. Well, Jesus does the same thing. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The idea is you have no idea who I am or what I'm going to do. Jesus isn't being arrogant here, but rather he's fulfilling what he said back in John chapter 3, that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's talking about here the total plan of redemption, which includes Jesus being lifted up on the cross and then eventually lifted up in the ascension. In other words, Jesus is telling them that he has the authority to say hard things because of who he is. Then secondly, he says something else. He says, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. He's further removed it. He's telling them that the thing that they need to empower them for their belief is outside of themselves and the flesh. Like their confidence, their ability, who they are is no help at all. It's very similar to what Jesus did with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he told him that he has to be born again and Nicodemus can't get his head around it. Jesus is telling him it's impossible for you to do it if you think about doing it the way that you've always done it. You can't do it this way. Nicodemus, the only way is for the spirit of Christ to blow upon you. So Jesus elevates the truth both about himself, he makes it clear that trusting in anything else would be a tragic decision, and then he says in verse 63b, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, he's indicating that the possibility of life exists because of what he is saying, and the words that he speaks are generated by the spirit, have the potential to give life if they would just but receive them. So Jesus is saying all these things, and yet he knows the problem of mankind. Look at verse 64. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. See, again, here it is. The problem is unbelief. And what is the greatest dynamic or the greatest cause of unbelief? It is that human beings trust themselves. 
If you could self-diagnose your own blindness, the reason that you're blind is because of your confidence in your ability to see. Spiritually blind people think they see, but they don't. And until they come face to face with the reality of, whoa, I thought I was seeing, but I really wasn't. I thought I was good, but I'm really not. I thought this was how I could make God happy, but it doesn't. Until they come that, to the point of realizing, I can't do this, what do I do? Jesus steps in and says, trust in me. Place your confidence in me. Look at the parenthetical thought in verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it, and who it was who would betray him. And then Jesus says something even more challenging. He says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted to him by the Father. Here's yet another hard saying of Jesus. He's saying, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. In other words, you, you can't even will it unless God wills it in you. Again, it's a hard text. If you operate merely from a position of fairness, if you just bring like a fairness perspective to this text, this text would be offensive and hard. It could even be fatalistic. But if you start not with a perspective of fairness. You don't bring fairness into this text, but instead you start with the hopeless condition of mankind and our helplessness in and of ourselves. Suddenly the idea that God draws people to himself is not unkind. It's incredibly gracious. It is the intervention of God by sovereign love that conquered our blindness and drew us to see the beauty of who Jesus is. So what happens here? As Jesus gives a big view of God, a big view of his sovereignty, and this big view is comforting to those who understand the helplessness of mankind. And so if you're here today and you're like, wait, I want to understand this, what do you do? You, you first acknowledge that you can't do this on your own, and you cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to understand this, help me to understand this, help me to understand this. And in doing so, God, by his spirit, can reveal and uncover the truth that is here that points you away from yourself and points you instead to the person of Christ. So there's a hard saying, a big view of God, and now here's the singular hope. This is amazing. Verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When they heard these things, they were like, yeah, we're done, and they left. They, 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 they walked away. So then Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus turns to them and says, are you gonna go away? Now, why did he ask this? Does he ask this because he doesn't know what they're going to do? Of course not. Jesus knows exactly what they're going to do. He asks this not for his benefit, he asks this for their benefit, because in this moment, they're going to reaffirm, Peter's gonna be their spokesman, and they're going to reaffirm what they believe, and in that reaffirmation, it's going to help them as they follow Jesus. Do you know that you need regular affirmations if you're a Christian? When we gather on the Lord's Day, when we sing songs, we're reaffirming things that we believe, but through the course of a week, somehow begin to lose their efficacy in our life. And by reaffirming them, we are re-acknowledging, reconnecting to truths that we didn't lose, but truths that began to be diminished. 
Jesus asks the disciples, are you going to go? And then Peter, this is probably one of Peter's finest moments. Now, Peter has a lot of not fine moments, but this is one of those good ones. Peter answered on behalf of the group, Lord, this is so good. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a statement. Peter says some amazing things in these few words. He affirms first his desperation. Peter may not know everything, and he will make some major mistakes in his lifetime, which ought to comfort all of us, because we all make big mistakes in our lifetime. But this is one thing that Peter got right. This is the central truth that all Christians must affirm and must believe, and that there is no one else who has the words of eternal life. Peter says, to whom will we go? Reminds me of John 14, a text we have not yet gotten into where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, Lord, to whom are we going to go? Peter has come to the conclusion that the person of Christ and his grace is the exclusive thing that he needs. You see, friend, this is the purpose of all brokenness and the destruction of your self-trust. It is for you to realize and come to a point of desperation to say, I don't have any hope except in Christ. And when that becomes your conclusion, you have an infinite and eternal amount of hope because you've just met the one who can give hope like no one else. He owns hope. He is hope. He's the essence, and he bought hope. So Peter is desperate. Where else are we going to go? And then he is full of faith. Look what he says. He says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, we believe this and we know this. And then he says that you are the Holy One of God. So here's Peter who is worshiping. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He's pinning all of his hopes on Christ. He's come to terms, at least in this moment, with the hopelessness of all other options, and he places his full confidence in who Jesus, in who Jesus is. Peter, in effect, says, my only hope is you. And all that this text would just go, all right, that's it. Peter would be like, peace out, high fives, all right, let's go. But that's not how the text ends. If it was a movie, the credits would just start to roll here. But John wants us to know something more because Jesus in this moment doesn't affirm Peter's statement as right as he is. He doesn't say to him, Peter, I'm thankful that you said that. Instead, what does Jesus say? Verse 70, he says, did I not choose you, the 12? Why does he do this? Because he wants to make it clear that there is no hope in any other person or any other place than him, and that includes Peter even hoping in his own confession. And so our text is a reminder that while Peter's statement is amazing, that Jesus wants even Peter in this moment to know that that statement didn't come from him alone that undergirding even the statement of Jesus is the sovereign choosing by Jesus of these disciples. And then John wants you to know that even in this group, it's still broken. 
He says he spoke of Judas, the son. Oh, he says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And so what John wants you to understand is the tragedy, again, of unbelief. And he wants you to see it clearly and to understand our hopelessness without the help of Jesus. So let me apply this, specifically to fathers and then tangentially to the rest of us. Dad, what I want you to understand that in the midst of your need to be strong appropriately, the calling on your life to be a good provider and a stabilizer in your home. Dad, you need to be those who are rescuers, be the humble warrior. In the midst of all of that, I wanna remind you today something that you know, but I want you to know it more deeply, that your strength and your power are limited and real manlyhood, or being really manly and being really godly means that you embrace more of your helplessness, not less. The dads that I know and the godly men that I know who know Jesus well are the men who understand that the more I've known about Jesus, the more I know how far I've got to go. Your children may think you're a superhero, and that's not bad, but the reality is underneath you know the truth. I mean, you could be a great man, and you may well be a great man, but you also know your limits. I want to call on you today to embrace your helplessness and to realize and affirm that underneath your walk with Christ and your godliness are remaining elements of pride and brokenness and bitterness, insecurity. There's remaining elements of greed and lust and anger. They, they lurk under the surface. And I want to encourage you, dads, that the more you know about Jesus, those things don't seem smaller. They actually seem bigger. They may not be bigger, but they become bigger in your purview because the more you understand about the glory of Jesus and the more you want to be godly and righteous, the more clear those things become. So if you find yourself less sensitive about sin and less inclined towards righteousness and less passionate about where your relationship is with Jesus, it is not that you're pursuing maturity no matter how old you are. It's actually the reverse. The more godly you are, the more you understand how much you need Christ's grace. And again, that's not just true for dads, that's true for every Christian. And then finally, secondly, while dads embracing your helplessness, this text calls us, and I want to call you today, to look to Jesus afresh and anew. It doesn't matter whether you're on top of the world or flat on your back, your need to look to Jesus is the same. He's the help that you need. You may be here today and not yet a Christian, and your life is starting to become clear that there are certain things that you need to address specifically related to the condition of your soul, and whether you're a dad or a man or a woman or a mother or a single adult or a teenager or a young child, look, all of us, we have to look to Jesus. He's the only one that can meet the deep, deep needs of our soul because he's the only one who has the words of eternal life. It may be that you've known Christ for 50 years. But the truth is, the more that you live and understand who Jesus is, the more you understand how much you need of him. I want you to remind your heart, dads, 
of the truth that Peter said, to whom shall we go? Jesus has the words of life. So John 6 is a hard text. It's loaded with mystery and tension and unanswered questions. This text reminds us that God is bigger than what our minds can sometimes even possibly get our heads around. But the point of this passage is something that's really important and it's significant on this day, and it's this. We are hopeless without Jesus' help. And dads, that's true, and it's true for all of us. That we ought to be the kind of people to say, where else are we going to go? You, Jesus, only you have the words of life. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we ask that in Jesus' name, he would remind us of our utter helplessness and our need for the gospel to be applied in our lives through the person and work of Jesus. Lord, I pray for godly, righteous fathers in the context of this church. We have so many, and I give you thanks for them, and pray that the brothers who are faithful would continue to follow you, follow you well for many, many, many years. And God, we pray today as well that you would help younger men and children who are following behind us to grow in grace, that they might be the kind of folks who apply the gospel to their lives, knowing that at the end of the day, Christ, you are all that we need. So God, today, would you remind us of a truth that probably most of us know, but needs to be appropriated afresh in our lives, that you, Jesus, are the only one who has the words of life. We need you, and sometimes we need you a lot more than we even realize. So Lord, help us because we're hopeless without your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.